Thank you, Rosie. Thanks to everyone watching. This story begins, for me anyway, in the mid-80s when I was 19 years old. I was in a darkened cinema in, actually, the Curzon Cinema Mayfair in London, uh, there to see the first part of that epic nine-and-a-half-hour documentary, Shoah, the film made by Claude Landsman. There's no archive in the film. Uh, It is just a series of interviews and Uh, one after another, people who witnessed the attempt, uh, or rather the murder of six million Jews, the attempt to destroy the Jewish people. One interviewee absolutely leapt out uh, from the screen to me above all the others, and I never forgot his name, I never forgot his face. Uh, He was uh, Rudolf Verber. And while the other people on the film, uh, in the film, looked to me old and broken, uh, and, uh, and sort of hunched almost, um, there was this striking man, handsome, dapper, uh, confident. Uh, he was wearing a tan leather coat. He was in New York City. Uh, he wore, looked a bit like a kind of Al Pacino, Scarface era Al Pacino. Um, and he was speaking in English where a lot of the others speak, were, were not. And he just leapt out. He seemed and in some ways actually was a generation younger uh, than everyone else in the film. And I never forgot about it because he mentioned something amazing. Almost as an aside, he says that when he was 19, he had escaped from Auschwitz. Uh, I know and have since uh, you know, look, nailed this down that only four Jews ever escaped from Auschwitz, but Werber and his escape companion, Fred Wetzler, they were the first. Only four ever did it, they were the first. Werber did it when he himself was 19 years old. Um, In the film, they didn't really get into it. But at the time, I thought this is extraordinary. And the story uh, I found came back to me in recent years in the era of post-truth and fake news. I found myself thinking again about Verba because not only did he escape and do it in the most extraordinary and thrilling way, uh, he did it, as Rosie mentioned, in order to warn the world. Um, That was his driving purpose. Uh, He wanted the truth, the facts, to be out in the world for reasons which I'll say more about. Uh, It did have great success. It saved through a series of diplomatic moves, this escape and the report he wrote after he'd escaped Auschwitz led to the saving of 200,000 Jewish lives. My view, and I'm gonna try and argue this uh, tonight, is that his story should be up there with Anne Frank, Oscar Schindler, Primo Levi, the stories that define the Holocaust in our imaginations uh, and in our memories. Um, So let's get this first image up of the man who we're talking about. Here he is. Um, This is Rudolf Verber. That's him after his escape. He, after he'd escaped, he joined the resistance and he wore the uniform of uh, Slovakia. You can see what he looks like there. Uh, But the thing that made him famous is this place. We'll go to the next image. Uh, where he arrived there at Auschwitz on the last day of June 1942. Uh, As you'll know, people who arrived at Auschwitz were immediately separated, selected. Most, the overwhelming majority, were led, uh, uh, Jews were led immediately to the gas chambers, but a small minority, between 5%, 10%, of each train load of Jews that would arrive 
would be taken off to work as prisoners. The word I use in the book is slaves. They were slave workers. And um, hence the slogan, Arbeit macht frei, work makes you free, um, or, uh, uh, or work will set you free. Um, Verba was a prisoner, a slave laborer, but something really unusual there, which is the average life expectancy for, for, for a Jew who arrived at Auschwitz was measured in hours, but if they were a slave, a slave worker there, really very few made it beyond a couple or perhaps three months. Verba was so unusual because he was there for the best part of two years. And through those two years, he saw the most enormous amount. He had this uniquely panoramic perspective on the place he worked all these different places around the camp, but also on the process. He saw pretty well every stage uh, of the killing process. So his job for 10 months was to work on the platform, the railway platform known as the ramp, where each train came in, uh, bringing, disgorging from the cattle trucks, another transport of Jews. He worked there for 10 months. He saw every single one come in, uh, and then those people being selected with this huge number being sent to the gas chambers. But he worked at all these other places, a place known as Canada, which was the sort of El Dorado of Auschwitz, where all the stolen goods of uh, the Jews were kept. And so he saw how the Jews were uh, arrived, selected, deprived of their worldly goods, and then sent to the gas chambers. And he almost became a kind of analyst of the process understanding it, how it was broken down into different stages, how it was so seamlessly efficient. And two important things happened in that process. The first was that he reached this great insight, which was going to shape all the events that followed. He realized that the key to the Nazi method was deception. It was because the Nazis lied to their victims at every single stage that they were able to conduct this slaughter in an orderly and smooth way that it was the cardinal principle, it wasn't just some add-on, that the Jews were deceived. And it happened at every stage, so that before they got on the trains, they were told they were being resettled, new homes, new villages, new, new communities in the East um, where they would live. So they believed that, and that's partly why they got on those trains, uh, because they believed the lie they were told. When they arrived, they were told, you know, they were asked, what is your profession? We need to know your trade because you will do that afterwards, after you've been cleansed in the so-called showers, another lie, when of course the showers were gas chambers. At every stage they were deceived. And so the great insight Rudolf Erber, then just 17 years old, had was that the only way to break the Nazi killing machine was to break the lie, to break through this veil of lies and ignorance and come through with the truth because he realized that it was so much easier for the Nazis to uh, uh, kill people who had no idea what was coming to them than if they if their victims uh, did have that knowledge they would then not go quietly so he became determined to break the secrecy uh, and tell the Jews uh, of the world, the remaining Jews, what fate awaited them, so they wouldn't go quietly onto those trains. That became his driving purpose. He had the most phenomenal memory. I did toy with calling this book the memory man, because he was able to memorize every transport that came in, the estimate of the numbers, uh, the details of the point of origin, etc. That would also become really important. But he resolved to escape. Um, well, let's have a look at the next image. This you're about to see 
is the telegram that was issued by the SS officer in charge of the security of the the uh, of uh, of the prison of the camp, uh, and here he is sending uh, word to the Gestapo, essentially saying we've lost two prisoners. It happened. You can see the dates there: Rosenberg and Wetzler. Rudolf Herber's name uh, before he changed it was Walter Rosenberg. Um, there are their two names in the middle. Um, the you can see the date seventh uh, of April. That's the day they went missing. They came up with the most ingenious method of, to pull off their escape. I'm going to hold it back for you because I want you to read the book. It was so ingenious. It was it required physical resilience. It required courage. But the main thing was they spotted a loophole in the, a gap in the Nazi defences. It wasn't a physical gap. It was a fatal flaw in their system. The only clue I'll give you, it was something to do with the Nazis' uh, predictability, the way they always stuck to the same routines. Through that, they escaped, hence the telegram that was sent. They then, because uh, they, you know, by no means were they free at that point, they then had to cross Nazi-occupied Poland, the two of them, Wetzler, age 25, Verba, age 19, across marshlands, across forests, across rivers, in occupied Poland, traveling at night. They couldn't dare be caught by Nazi collaborators in, in Poland itself. They crossed the border into their native Slovakia, and there they wrote a report. We might be able to see the front page, the cover page of the report, an English translation of it. Um, but there they crammed in, dictated, there it is, the front page of the report, 32-page, single-spaced, detailed, factual account of the entire killing process. At that point, it was the most detailed account of what was happening in Auschwitz any, that existed. Nobody in the world even knew the word Auschwitz until that document that they had effectively smuggled out. It then had went on its own journey, passed hand to hand across borders and through really some a series of miracles, it reached uh, the, the Allied powers, we can see the people whose desks it crossed in this next image, because it did reach the desks of Winston Churchill on the left there, Franklin Roosevelt, the American president, and Pope Pius XII in the Vatican. Uh, they saw that report, and through a series of international moves, it led to the saving of 200,000 lives in Hungary, which was the last Jewish community, the one that uh, the Nazis had not yet got their hands on. The Jews of Budapest were, as I describe and recount in the book, effectively saved by 19-year-old Rudolf Erber's report with Fred Wetzler. It's an incredible story, but it's not entirely smooth story. And in my last minute or so, the, the reason partly why this story uh, uh, appealed to me was it wasn't just a thrilling adventure of how these two men did this. There's also something a really strong lesson for today, because their report ran into this wall of disbelief. People did not believe what they were reading. They were skeptical. Even Jewish leaders in Hungary who read it wondered if this was the product of two young men's feverish imagination. Uh, they couldn't necessarily believe it. Uh, and therefore, and similar reactions in Washington and in Whitehall, that meant there was inaction even though there was this plea for action attached to the report, even a plea to bomb the railway tracks to Auschwitz, it, that, re that plea reached London, it reached Washington, but there was no such action. And that is because, I argue, that people find it very hard to believe what they cannot bear to hear, that the, even the warned cannot always hear the warning. I think that has huge lessons for us 
in, uh, in our modern world today, whether it is the climate crisis, where people cannot bear to hear the warning. We know that something terrible is happening, but almost don't want to face it. Or whether it is those stories, those hair-raising stories that have come out of Ukraine with Ukrainian relatives uh, calling uh, their family in Russia and saying we're being bombed and their Russian relatives saying, I don't believe you. The lesson of Rudolf Verber's extraordinary story that I tell in this book, The Escape Artist, is that just getting out the facts, the truth, the information is not always enough. People don't just have to hear the information, they have to believe it. And that is incredibly hard to do. And I believe it's one of the powerful lessons of this story. And one reason why I've written it, and why very much I hope you read it, it is why Rudolf Verber's experience is as urgent today as I believe it was in 1944. Thank you.